Would you please join with me in prayer? Lord, we are so grateful for this beautiful day, which reminds us of the new life in creation. And we thank you for the new life we have in you, Lord Jesus, as our risen Lord. We just pray now, Lord, as we come before you, looking once again at Abraham, as we travel this journey of what it means to walk the call of faith to what you have called us to, that you would illumine our hearts and our minds to new truths that perhaps we've never seen before, so that we would be empowered to live the lives you've called us to live here in 2016. For in Jesus' name I pray, amen. My mom went to a garage sale one year in, in Virginia and got a record player and a stack of records as a little boy to keep me busy. She would just say, go over there and listen to your records. And I would. And these were great records. I had one six-album volume of old-time radio shows. And one whole side of the record was commercials. This is before TV, people, all right? Some of you will remember these commercials, such as Pepsi Cola hit the spot, 12 full ounces, that's a lot, twice a month for nickel two. Pepsi Cola is a drink for you. Huh? They get, they get, yeah, yeah, thank you. Hey, they get in your head and you don't, you can't ever lose them, ever. And that's just one of a whole half-hour side of commercials that are stuck in my head. Commercials have a way of doing that, and even more so visual commercials, right? The most, one of the most powerful commercials ever in marketing history is the 1988 Nike Just Do It campaign. That campaign ran off and on for 25 years. And it changed. It started off with Michael Jordan, you know, went to Roger Federer and the tennis and all kinds of professional athletes. Ended up in 2015. It was a great commercial. I don't know if you ever saw it. It was talking about greatness and what the world thinks is greatness. And on the horizon, you see this slow jogger. And as the camera pans, you realize it's that kind of schlumpy, poor, overweight, kid in your gym class and he's just doing it good for him you think and he's wearing a pair of nikes and you own a pair of nikes probably because we all were encouraged to just do it right we're in this series in abraham a call to faith ladies and gentlemen i encourage you to Open up your Bibles to Genesis chapter 17, for here we go. He changes today from Abram to Abraham. For what we've seen in last week's shortcut attempt to obtain an heir through Hagar is meant to provide for the reader and for us a spiritual background for the story of covenant renewal. If you look in your Bibles, chapter 16 ends with this. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar, was, Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. And verse 1 that John read for us in chapter 17 this morning says what? Abram was 99 years 
99 years, 13 years have gone by since last week. Silence, right? I'm sure there's a cloud of despair that hangs over the family. Life carried on, oh sure, Ishmael's 13 years old by now. He was beloved by Abram, I'm sure, and Hagar, and his rowdy behavior was evident to all, as we're going to see. And his very existence, I'm sure, was a thorn in Sarai's side. She's 89. She's my mom's age. You ever see my mom walk? Two fake knees, a fake hip? Sharp as a tack. Not a real pretty jogging gait. And here's Sarai well beyond her childbearing year, and Ishmael's rowdiness only makes matters worse for her. It will, in fact, as we will see later on this summer, his very undoing. And I'm sure by now, Abram was hoping that somehow Ishmael would live under God's blessing. But if Ishmael was not the child of promise, how in the world at 99 and Sarai at 89 become the father of a great nation and inherit the land that had been promised to him? It's been 23 years since Genesis 12. Think about that. We think that these things happen right after another, and they don't in the scriptures. It's important for us to understand they live just normal lives like us. And so through that time, what we see is Abram is growing in his faith. And what we're going to see this morning is how God came to Abram and raised his faith by confirming the promise with a specific covenant sealed by Abram's obedience in, in a similar manner even today and ours with the revelation of a name change. We're going to look at the two name changes of God and Abram this morning and we'll look at Sarah and Isaac next week. Let's look at this. So what we're going to learn today is a name change, a covenant sign, and a call to walk faithfully with the Lord. A name change, a covenant sign, and a call to walk faithfully. Let's first look at the name changes that are going on here. Verse 1, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face. This is not just... Any old word that God uses for, him, my, for himself, my friends, this is the Hebrew word El Shaddai, God Almighty. Never before used up to this point in Genesis. It means God's power, his omnipotence, his sovereignty. This is the God who makes things happen by his majestic power and might. God uses this name of himself to Moses in Exodus 6. When he calls to Moses. He uses the name to encourage Job 31 times. Job, I am El Shaddai to you. Don't forget it. And we will hear God speak of himself as El Shaddai throughout Genesis as well. From this time forward. 
And what he's saying to Abram is, I am able to fulfill my promise to you, Abram, for a people and a land. There's no need due to your age to give up on the promises that I promised you 23 years ago. Doesn't matter if you're an old man. Everything, all of your life, lies in the reality that I am God Almighty in you and to you. Christians, it's the same for us. The way we live our lives Sunday through Saturday is determined by what we think of God. If we realize that He is God Almighty, it changes everything, does it not? The awesome and mighty power of God of Genesis 17, that our lives will reflect that truth in His omnipotence, in His promises that He has made to us through Father Abraham in Jesus. What we truly believe about God Almighty is the most important thing of your life. Anything less than who He is will shrivel your spirit and make your faith a passive one and a weak one. And so we see Him change Abram's name and explains the results of the covenant to Abram as Abram is now falling down on his face. And God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant. To be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and your offspring after you the land of your sojourning. All the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. And I will be their God. This is the pivotal moment, ladies and gentlemen. This is it. From this time forward, God has a people for himself through Abraham. Noted scholar Nahum Sarna says it this way. In the psychology of the ancient Near Eastern world, a name was not merely a convenient means of identification, but was intimately bound up with the very essence of being inextricably intertwined with the personality of the individual. It's an exercise of God's sovereignty in Abraham's life to change his name. Lordship that only God can perform in a person's life. I love our new Anglican baptism liturgy. We went back to the Reformation. When the parents hand me the baby, I get to look at them and say, name this child. And they give me the name, the first and middle name. His name is Eugene Sutherland. And so I get to baptize that baby in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Their God-given name. Not the last name. The last name is man-given. The first and middle are, you were inspired by the Holy Spirit to name the, your child, but you named him. So we baptize that. And I don't have the right to change the baby's name. Can you imagine if the baby's name is John and I say, well, you've chosen to make him John, but I'm going to make him Bart, you know? <laughs> That's a cultic exercise of power. Only God can do that. God's renaming of Abram. And Sarai, that we will see next week as she becomes Sarah, as we will see, is a blessing 
to both of them of God's loving sovereignty over their lives, as we will see. And by the way, this is the greatest argument and defense of why we baptize infants, ladies and gentlemen. Always go to Genesis 17 if you get in a loving debate with a, with a loving Baptist friend. It's a side argument. I, I will recognize that. But I heard a debate between John MacArthur and R.C. Sproul, and Dr. Sproul never once invoked Genesis 17, and MacArthur destroyed him. Believe me, the Baptists got some good arguments here. They do. But we got Genesis 17. That there have been a covenant children of God from Abram's time. As his name was changed, there have been covenant children. And in the New Testament, covenant children were baptized. The Philippian jailers, Acts 16, whole household was baptized. Do you think there weren't children? Of course there were. In an ancient family, of course there were. So therefore, Abram means exalted father, but Abraham means a father of the multitude. Every time he heard his name from this time forward, he was father of the multitude. Good morning, father of the multitude. Good night, father of the multitude. Father of the multitude, could you come here? I need to speak with you. Get the point? And it's from this 99-year-old father of the multitude that kings shall come from. I'm sure that so far out of 99 old, wrinkly Abram's, Abraham's mind that kings are going to come from my line. He's not saying right. He's saying okay. Because he's face down at this time. Because he's still living out of a tent. But yet a thousand years later, David would become king. And ultimately a thousand years later would usher in the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew puts it this way. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Tying it all together. Here we have the first thought of Jesus being King of Kings and Lord of Lords, Revelation 19. King shall come from you is the beginning of Palm Sunday. Really, when you think about it. Royal reality would resound in Abraham's heart every time he heard his name. Father of a multitude. And so therefore, with the name changes, God calls his faithful ones to be set apart by a sign of circumcision. Verse 9, And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. Scholar Ronald Youngblood of the circumcision says this, as the rainbow is the sign of the Noahic covenant and the Sabbath is the sign of the Mosaic covenant, so circumcision is the sign of Abrahamic covenant. The rainbow and the Sabbath already existed prior to the institution of the covenants they came to signify. So also circumcision did not originate with Abraham. It was practiced in Egypt and elsewhere centuries before his time. 
but it received new meaning here in Genesis 17. Similarly, thousands of people were crucified before the time of Jesus, but the cross took on vastly new and different meaning when our Lord was crucified. Circumcision came to symbolize the spiritual commitment of one's commitment to God. Deuteronomy 10.6 says, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and your, the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskins of your hearts, O men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Deuteronomy 4.4. 4. As a sign... Circumcision functioned in the Old Testament much as a wedding ring symbolizes commitment. The external sign signifies a whole life commitment. But unlike a wedding ring, circumcision can't be cast aside. It's a permanent sign. And it involved all of Abraham's powers of creation. He's been taking shortcuts. He's been pawning Sarah off. He's been ebbing and flowing in his faith for 23 years. And he doesn't have a son yet. You will now, and this is going to be the sign. It's an act of repentance and total dependence upon God for the promises that he's made. And it's also a solemn reminder that covenants are solemnized through blood and through pain. Every Hebrew male underwent the operation as it was an essential sign. And you might be thinking, but what about girls? Girls are covered by covenant-keeping men. Gentlemen, that's what happened in the Old Testament. The, the daughters and the women are lovingly cared for by covenant-keeping men who were servants to their families. As they taught their children coming and going all along the way. And we were, they were reminded that to disobey it had consequences. Verse 14, any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. You see, we're learning here that there's only one way, God's way. It's always been this way. This could not be dismissed in the way that Cain had attempted to disregard God's will for offering his sacrifice. For Cain came along and thought that God had no business in picking what was acceptable to him. Ladies and gentlemen, there's no way but God's way. And circumcision is a warning and a directive. No longer valid in the New Testament. You know, if you remember the Galatians controversy, you know, people were adding to the gospel for these Romans and Greeks. And it was clear in the New Covenant that it's cast aside, but not now. Right here in Genesis. In Genesis, this was a sign of God's people. It's a warning and a directive that God's way is the only way. And boy, does that fly in the face of our culture, doesn't it? Which believes that God's duty is to accept us as long as we do our best. Ian Duguid, the great scholar, says... Many people approach God as if they were interviewing him for a personal job. And the job description is the personal deity of my life. Line up the interviewees, 
And if the man in the sky fits the job description, being non-judgmental and accepting of me no matter how I live my life, allowing me to determine what is right and wrong, he's got the job, that lucky God. Stop it. There's only one God and there's one way. He's revealed himself in the God of grace and truth in Jesus through Abraham. This is our boy. We're grafted into the vine, we Gentiles, because of our Lord Jesus. And that's not the way God operates. He's the God of truth and grace. Takes us just as we are. And therefore, we are called to just do it. Live into that grace and truth. Verse 12. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Therefore the message is, is all who call themselves Christian take heed and listen. Just as there is only one way in this old covenant, so there is only one way in the new. We prayed that prayer at our college. Did you catch that? In Eastertide, we pray, grant us so perfectly to know your son, Jesus Christ, to be the way, the truth, and the life, that we may steadfastly follow his steps in the way that leads to eternal life. Amen? You see, this covenant is a new covenant in his blood. As he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. All who come to me shall not grow weary. We will have rest. And so therefore, the just do it is not out of a duty. It's not out of, oh, I just come at an inconvenient time on Sunday because that's what I'm supposed to do. It's not, oh, I should minister to my neighbor with needs because I just should do it. It's I do it because Jesus calls me to love and to serve. Because that person's created in God's image just as I'm created in God's image. And because he's accepted me, I need to reach out to them. Because this is good news, friends. For each and every one of us. So let's walk in the covenant as he has called us to. In the love of Jesus, the child of Abraham. Let's pray. Lord, we're grateful.